So we are uh, in part five of our freedom series. We're really kind of making some headway now, getting deep into the thick of it. And it's, I'm stoked about this series. This is a good series and God's doing some good things and it's starting to get warmed up here. So we're going to be in um, Matthew chapter 19. Um, and if, uh, if you had a bulletin uh, from first service or anything, I said Matthew 10. That was my mistake, not anyone else's mistake. I got the wrong information out to our people. So it's Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And uh, you know how we do it here. We're going to stand in honor of God's word as we read it. So you can join me. And behold, a man came up to him. This is to Jesus. This is Jesus' interactions here. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? You can have a seat. We're going to pray again. And are you allowed to pray again in church? <laughs> the, uh, a, a double prayer. So uh, what I want us to do, um, there's that song there. It's, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise for you. You know, we're told in the scriptures, when are we supposed to give thanks? Give thanks always, okay? So no matter what's going on in our life today, we have the ability right now to give thanks, okay? And so what I want us to do is that I want you to think for a minute of whatever your burden is, because we all have them. So whatever's like in front of you that you're stressing about or you're trying to figure out, and you might not be obsessing about it right now, but just in general, kind of the thing that's, if I could change this, or this is what's hanging over my head, or this is the decision, just think about it for a second, okay? And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep breath. We're going to close our eyes, and we're going to take a deep breath, and we're going to imagine just releasing that to the Lord, okay? Just releasing it to him. And with our exhale, we're going to say, thank you, Jesus, okay? That's what we're going to say. We're going to say, thank you, Jesus, okay? So everybody thinking about it? All right, close your eyes. With the inhale, we're releasing it to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus. God, uh, we are giving that stuff over to you today. We live in your grace. And today we are excited about uh, the fact that we're here gathered together with other brothers and sisters who believe in you. And we live in a place where it's not easy to get all the encouragement always um, in, in, throughout our, our lives that we need to keep living the life of walking with you. But you have given us everything that we need. And so here today, God, we're just, it's really sweet to be able to be here and to receive from you. So God, give us your blessing, give us your grace today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. So there was this new study that came out. I don't know if you heard about it. Some of you might've seen it online or heard about it on the radio. Uh, Jen was telling me that uh, on, uh, what's the name of the 106.9, the Christian radio station? K-Love, K-Love. On K-Love, they were talking about this the other day. So um, if you've heard, there's this, it was a, uh, a Bureau of Investigation of Economic Statistics. So I, I forget what they called it. Um, uh, f- f- uh, U.S. Embassy for Economic Research, that's what it is, put out this report that was done by a few um, universities. And it was studying the happiest and unhappiest regions of America and the happiest and unhappiest cities in America, both just general cities and then cities over uh, a million in population. And it brought out all the results of that. Okay. Anybody hear some of that stuff? Any results? Okay. So if you've heard it, you're not allowed to answer these questions. Okay. Because then you're just giving it away. But number one most unhappy city in the world, what is it? Or in the nation? San Francisco? New York. New York. New York. Number one unhappiest city in America. If you've been there in rush hour, you know it. <laughs> or if you didn't know which way you were going at that, red, at that green light when it came on, oh, man, did you know it. Um, and this is the thing, is that, you know, uh, New York is a powerhouse, powerhouse in our world, arguably the most powerful city on earth. It's certainly the melting pot of America, in many ways, and it is economically kind of our bread and butter, New York, you know, this and this place. Name a city that's more powerful. You might say, well, maybe Washington, D.C. Name a one overseas. I don't know. It's tough to name a city that's more powerful than New York City. And yet it's the unhappiest place in America. Unhappiest place. Now, when it comes to the, the regions, they had like different regions that were, I don't know how they specified a region, but it was kind of like, uh, it would be like a county, that kind of thing. It wasn't like, a, a, like the northeast or the, the southeast. It was much smaller than that. There was multiple regions throughout every, any given state. In the top 10 most unhappy regions in America, Pennsylvania had three of them. When it came to the top 10 cities that were most unhappy, that had over a million in population, Pennsylvania had two of them, the two that we have, right? <laughs> so Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia, I don't know how big Harrisburg is. Or, or, uh, Scranton, if Scranton was on there, it would have been, I mean, if uh, Allentown was on there, it would have been on there because in the regions, we had three regions that were on there, and Scranton-Wilkesbury was one of those regions, okay? And, and so I, we blew it out of the water, unhappiest state in the nation, okay? Way to go! We got it! We're on the list! If you add Jersey, the North Jersey part of New York, 
we had a little competition because there was some Connecticut, Jersey stuff, suburbs of New York that kind of factored in there as far as regions. So our only competition was Big Brother up north, you know. And uh, so, but when you looked at the unhappy regions from like the eastern seaboard, northeast here of, uh, of New York and Philadelphia and that area, and then going out to like Michigan, that strip right there is where on the, on the map, very unhappy. There was five cities in the top ten happiest in one state. Anybody know what it was without, the, without if you didn't read it? Texas, Florida, you're headed the right direction. Louisiana. That's what I said. What are you talking about? Where's Louisiana? Anyway, that's what I was wondering. Wait, where's Louisiana? I know there's sun there. I think the takeaway was is that down in the Sun Belt, you know, you got, you could, well, you, when you went south and then up and hooking around a little bit, that's where all the happy people were down in the sunshine. You know, we knew the sunshine made people happy, but it's also slower. It's a lot slower. Last week we talked about not being a slave to hurry and overextension, not being breaking off the bondage of hurry and overextension and being able to not be a slave to time but to walk slow enough to smell the roses. And apparently down south, that's a little bit of a part of it. I don't know what the common denominators are. One of the things that was clear is that this was put on by a Bureau of Economic Research, but they found that economics had very little to do with it. Yeah, Louisiana's very poor, and when they're not getting slammed by hurricanes and flooded, apparently they're really happy. <laughs> yeah. Many of the places that were happy were poor, but not all of them. Some of them were really wealthy. Obviously, one of our wealthiest places around New York City was not happy at all. But Detroit was also down there in one of the really unhappy places. So was Indianapolis, which is right now very, very poor. So there was no rhyme or reason when it came to how, what people's salaries were or anything like that. So what is it about that makes Manhattan unhappy? You know, what is it about New York? People have to be unhappy. This passage that we just read about the rich young ruler, I think, could inform us a lot about why we live in an area in general that tends to not be very happy. Most of the time when we turn to the rich young ruler, we think of the rich young ruler's problem as what? Somebody said it. Money. Yeah. It likes his money too much. Materialism, greed. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about freedom from greed. And guess what passage I did not choose to use as the text for that? The rich young ruler. You know why? Because I don't think it's his problem. I don't think that's what his problem is. As a matter of fact, when we get to greed, the passage that we'll be using may be a passage that some would attribute to the thing we're studying today, which is self-righteousness. Look at the text with me. And behold, a man came to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Tipped his hand quick, didn't he? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus picks up very, very quickly on where this guy's coming from. My guess is this guy's wearing Armani. 
You know, he's dressed tight. He's in the latest fashion trends. He looks good. He's put together well. He's well-spoken. He is respected. Everyone's kind of made a little way for him. It's like, oh, it's that guy, you know? And he comes walking up to Jesus. And I think that there's an ounce of humility in him, honestly, because I think the whole reason he's coming to Jesus is because he thinks Jesus actually can tell him what he needs. Because he kind of found somebody who he thinks is better than him, which isn't easy for this guy to find. He pretty much has it together, and everyone knows he has it together. And he finds this guru, Jesus, who seems to be a little bit higher on the ladder than him. And so he comes to him and says, good teacher, what good thing do I have to do? What good deed do I have to do to have eternal life? Now, we've talked about the difference between eternal life and everlasting life. What's the difference between those two things? What's everlasting life mean? Never stops. Never stops. Keeps going. There's no end. It's everlasting. It just keeps lasting. It's really easy. You just like say ever and lasting. So it just keeps going and going and going and it doesn't end. That means that there's no back end to this thing. That means I go to heaven and I live forever. I don't die. I just keep going. That's everlasting, which is much different than eternal. What's eternal mean? No time. It doesn't have a beginning or an end or segments within it. It's timeless, eternal, which what the, the, the reason that's important is because this guy, the, the primary question that he is asking is not about how do I get to heaven and how do I live forever. The whole thing is how do I get to the deep life, the eternal life, the, the life that's bigger than all of this, okay? And last week we talked about living the deep life and what he's looking for is how do I live that like graceful life, the eternal life, the timeless one, you know? And, and you can see, basically what he's asking is, when do I know that I can rest? <laughs> I think that's what this guy's asking. When do I know that I've done enough? Because this guy is working hard. He is working hard. Very, very hard is my guess. Because he's, so now what do I have to do? And, and he gives us cues. Now, what does Jesus key in on? He says, after, I mean, obviously the question is, what do I have to do in order to get where I want to go and in order for God to be okay with me? Jesus' response is really interesting. He doesn't answer that question. He's like, good. He looks at the word, the modifier there. Because he's saying, basically what the guy's saying is, hey, teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Except we missed two words. Hey, good teacher, what good deed do I have to do to have eternal life? And that's what Jesus keys in on, his modifiers. And he's like, good. Why are you talking about what's good? Didn't you know that there's only one who's good? You see what Jesus is doing, don't you? Because this guy's saying, how good do I have to be? How do I get better? And he's saying, you will never be good. There is only one who is good. Irony, of course, is that he's talking to the one who is good. But Jesus doesn't reveal that because actually what he's saying, why are you asking me about what is good or what the good deed is? And even when he called him good teacher, he's like, there's only one who's good. And then he says, if you would enter life, notice he doesn't say eternal life. Because again, there isn't like 
rungs of goodness on the goodness ladder that you can climb. And there's also not like a scale, like down here's death and up here's life, and you climb the scale from death to life. There's either life or there's not. There's either goodness or there's not. And Jesus is saying, why are you, why are you talking to me about what's good? There's only one who's good. And then he's saying, if you want to enter life, in other words, you're not alive. You're not alive yet. And if you want to enter life, it's not just about like, this is eternal life and this is temporal life and I'm somewhere in between. No, he's saying, if you want to live, stop talking about what's good is what he starts saying. You know, but this is where he actually goes. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. To which the guy says, which ones? And this is awesome because... Jesus starts at command, well, he starts in the second half of the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, which, of course, this guy knew, like, he probably dreamed in terms of the Ten Commandments. I mean, this guy knew the Ten Commandments and was reciting them by the time he was, like, three, you know, and, and he knew them inside and out. And so Jesus picks up, he skips the first four commandments. What do the first four commandments have to do with? God, loving God. And then the second six have to do with how we love each other. And so he talks about those six, and he says, you got to do those things. To which the guy responds, what? I did it. What do you think of that? I don't know. Like, I think maybe on a technical level, this guy might have actually done a lot of that, you know? And he's like, I'm pretty much keeping in line. And when I'm not, I'm doing the sacrifice or whatever. I think this guy was a super, super self-disciplined guy probably and had his stuff together and was working hard. And the young man, honestly, probably in his mind, this was very, this is true honesty where he's saying, all these I've kept. And then like a good Wall Street trader or CEO of a corporation who has everything going for them, has everything they could possibly want, all their dreams fulfilled, and are laying on the couch in their shrink's office and saying, I'm still not happy. This guy says, but what do I still lack? That's what he says. What do I still lack? What's missing? What do I still lack? Why am I not? I, I know I'm not alive. You know, what do, what do I still lack? And Jesus, man, Jesus is awesome. He almost never, almost never, there are like two or three times in Scripture where Jesus will actually ask, answer the question that the person is asking. But every other time, he answers the question that they should be asking. He answers the question that the deepest part of them wants to ask but is afraid to ask. And that's what he answers. And so this is, the young man's like, yeah, but what am I still lacking, you know? And so Jesus kind of plays ball with him, and he says, okay, let's play this out. Let's get back to the first four commands, okay? And he says, I want you to sell everything you have. And notice what he says, if you would be what? Perfect. Okay, so what you're looking for is you're trying to go up the ladder and you think that I'm higher on the ladder than you. So if you want to be perfect, like you apparently think I am, then this is what you need to do. You need to get liquidate all of your assets and you need to give it all to the poor and then you need to come and follow me. Then we'll know two things. First of all, 
We'll know whether those things are idols, that stuff you're holding on to. But secondly, all that stuff that you did as far as honoring your father or not stealing and all that, that's one thing. But did you actually do that out of love or was that just like checking the religious box? So let's sell all the stuff and give it to the poor and see if like that's, if your heart's all in. If you want to be perfect, go all the way. Go all the way. Just give it all the way. Give everything up and come and follow me. Hold nothing back. Reckless abandon. Take every asset you have and liquidate it and give it to the poor and come and follow me. If you would be perfect, then you'll have the kingdom of God and then you can come and follow me. Goodness gracious, Jesus. What are you doing to me? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here's the moment. Here's the moment where we figure out what this guy is bound by and what's holding him. See, no one outside of Christ can be perfect. And yet this guy actually like bought the line that Jesus is giving him. That like, Okay, Jesus will receive me as his follower if I fully get rid of everything now and I sell everything I have so that Jesus can approve of me as his child and then I can come follow him. That's the good deed I need to do. And he hangs his head in sorrow. And this is my opinion. I've, I've heard, I've heard a, um, some preacher, I forget who it was a while ago, say this guy's problem was not the fact that he wouldn't sell everything. His problem is that he walked away. Because like the whole problem was instead of saying like, Jesus, I can't handle this and confessing and saying like, I'm just not that good. Instead, he walked away. I think that the reason the guy walked away most likely is because he was actually going to contemplate selling everything he had and giving it to the poor. And he had great sorrow because he actually, not because he didn't think he was going to get eternal life, but because he thought he had to give everything up in order to get it. And he was like, oh man, I got to go sell all this stuff. And he's probably doing the, the, the balance in it. Now, that's just my interpretation of it. I don't know. You know, doesn't say that. But what this is, what it does say, is that Jesus turns to his disciples and he say, it's with great difficulty that a rich person enters the kingdom of God. It's like a camel entering through the eye of a needle. Why is that the case? It's not because you have to sell all your stuff in order to get there. It's because when you're used to being large and in charge and you've got to get this small in order to receive the grace of God, but you're used to being this big in the world that you live in, it's really hard to get that small to get through the needle because in, in that world, he was the creme de la creme. He was living on the corner suite in the tallest, most beautiful penthouse building in Manhattan. Living large. And could not get happy. And God's saying, Jesus is saying, oh, you, so you, you're trying to figure out what you need to do more than what you've already done in order to have eternal life? All right, just sell it all. And come follow me. And the guy's like, ugh. And the point is, is like, you got to get over yourself. That's what you have to do. You have to come to the place where you realize, lay it on the altar, dude. You don't have what it takes to be perfect. You don't have what it takes to enter eternal life. You're the best one rocking the scene here. And you can't hang with me because there's only one who is good. 
And that's why what Jesus says to his disciples is awesome. It's incredible here. The disciples are like, they're like, wait a minute. This isn't going to work. If this guy can't make it, none of us are making it. You know, none of us. It's none of us. And to which Jesus responds. And it says, but Jesus looked at them. Notice that it says he looked at them. So like he hasn't been looking at them this whole time. He's been dealing with this guy and he's probably watching the guy walk away. And as he's watching the guy walk away, he's like, man, it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like looking at each other like, did you hear what he just said? And then Jesus turns around and he looks at him. And this is my guess. He looks at him and he winks at him. He winks at him and he says, for man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And they're like, oh, like the whole point was not that he needed to sell all the stuff. The whole point was is no matter what he does, he never quite gets there. He looks at them, lets them engage to see his facial expression and be like, nobody can do it. With man, it's impossible. And the reason it's tough for this guy is because he thinks that all things are possible through me who strengthens me. You know, instead of all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. There's only one who's good. And the thing that's the problem with this guy is he thinks he's good. That's his problem. There's an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, which means that we don't believe in our own depravity. That we don't believe that we are completely helpless without God, which means that we can self-improve and that God gives us the way and we have to kind of like figure out how to live in that way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that I am a depraved sinner, helpless beyond belief, and I can't fix myself and get myself to the place where finally God's like, good job, now you can come follow me. There's none of that. Man, I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm beyond help. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. He who can tame his tongue can tame everything. Who can tame their tongue in this room? If you raise your hand, lift your feet off the ground. <laughs> Here's the deal. We are broken sinners, every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God means nothing to him. Can't, we can't prove ourselves to God. And this man, he thought he was on a ladder headed toward eternal life, and he was doing pretty good, but was looking for the secret that was going to get him to the next level to get there. That was in a religious frame. It happens all the time in non-religious ways, like Manhattan, okay? Where it's not about, am I good enough? It's Am I producing enough? Am I successful enough? Am I good looking enough? Am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Am I whatever it is that it takes to be the one who can finally be happy and we're chasing and trying to self-improve? We get stuck in a cycle. You've heard me talk about this cycle before. We'll call it the cycle of self-reliance. You want to hit me up there? Um, switch over. Thanks, Elijah. Here we go, cycle of self-reliance. What happens when God is not the center of our scene, but we are the center of our scene, is that we're stuck in a cycle of selfishness. And when we are stuck depending on ourselves, we're not good in and of ourselves, which means that we never end up doing the right thing always. We're not perfect. So at some point, we're going to self-indulge. It means some point, we're going to mess up. 
Self-indulgence might mean this person treated me a certain way and my indulgence is to harbor bitterness against them and to not forgive them. It might mean that my indulgence is, you know, well, I've had a long, hard day, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and I know I shouldn't look at this one thing or watch this one thing, but it's like, ah, it's just slip up, you know. Or, or maybe I, I, I overdo something that would have been good in certain quantity, but now I overdid it. Whatever it is, self-indulgence. What happens after we self-indulge? How do we feel about ourselves? Guilty. We self-loathe. Okay, we start to not like who we are because we were created to be perfect, weren't we? Garden of Eden, we were created to be perfect. How do we know that? Because we were created in his image. We were created to reflect the image of God and God's perfect. We were supposed to be perfect. As soon as we're less than perfect, we're not happy with ourselves. That's why this rich young ruler who seemed to be good in all outward appearances wasn't happy with himself because he wasn't perfect. And that's why Jesus called him out and was like, if you want to be perfect, then this is what you should do. And the guy's like, I can't do that. But he actually thought he could and he was going and trying to do it. Craziness. So after we don't like ourselves, when we start self-loathing, there's two directions that we can go and still be focused on ourselves. The first one is a very simple thing, that when we don't like what's going on in our heads and in our hearts, we try to self-medicate. You know what that means, right? That's when I got to do something to instantly make my, like distract myself and feel better. I got to go shopping and buy that thing. Or I got to like buy two gallons of ice cream and pound them all tonight, you know, or like whatever it is to just like feel something good and it's not right. You know what I mean? Like we're doing something that's not healthy and not good, but it's just to kind of numb the pain. That's self-medication. This is a tight little cycle here because as soon as you self-medicate, when you wake up in the morning, what do you do? Self-loathe. That's a real tight cycle right there. And that one will keep going. It'll just keep going and keep going. And that's what we call addiction. And that's, that's when you get caught in a pattern of trying to go after this thing that'll numb the pain or distract me, but it never actually takes care of the problem. It only medicates the, the surface issue. Very tight thing. And what ends up happening is eventually we kind of numb our lives. And when life seemed to be awesome and exciting when we were kids, now it's just like, We've self-medicated ourselves to the point where we're not really stoked on life anymore. We're just kind of like, uh, this is what it is, and you have a little bit of happiness on the weekend, and live for this or live for that. We serve lesser gods. And uh, I was just praying about this in, in Sunday school. There's that verse in Jonah where um, Jonah, as he's prophesying, says, uh, what does he say? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. We could have lived in the grace of God but we forfeited it by clinging to these worthless idols. Self-medication, you know? However, there's, we can still cling to ourself and be self-reliant, but uh, go a different direction than self-medicating. And this is where every self-help book, every self-improvement, whether secular or religious, certainly every religion on earth other than true faith in Jesus, this is where it makes its money. It says that we need to self-evaluate. We need to take toll of our lives. We need to confess. We need to get honest with ourselves. We need to get real and take a good look at what's going on inside. And once we self-evaluate, clearly we're to learn from our mistakes and we're to self-improve. Okay, and this is what every religion on earth and every self-help book you know and every model at work that trains me how to do better there's i mean there's value to this thing of like you learn from your mistakes i mean i had i had coaches who would tell me like i don't care if you make a mistake just don't ever make it again 
you know? Or like, you know, just don't make it more than once, you know? You can make a million mistakes, just don't let any of them be the same mistake. Once you've made one, you've got to learn from it, and then you've got to improve on it. Well, there's truth to that in the sense that if you want to get good at something, you've got to learn from your mistakes, and you take toll, you take inventory, and you improve. But when it comes to compensating for self-indulgence and self-loathing, and I try to self-improve in order to fix myself, I will find something happens. So here it is. I spent my time inappropriately over here, so I never got time today to get in the Word or to be in prayer, and I feel real guilty about that. So tomorrow, I'm learning from my mistakes, all right? So I'm setting my alarm earlier, and I'm getting up, and I'm going to read the Bible. That's awesome. That's really good. That's the thing we're supposed to do. We read the Bible, we get up, and, or we set our alarm, we get up, we read the Bible. Now, I feel better because I feel like I'm more legitimate Christian, you know? And I feel like, and I probably had a touch from God, which also might have been awesome, legitimately, you know? But I, chances are, whatever I wasn't feeling okay about, I start to feel a little bit better about because I did better. And when I did better and start to feel better, then there's this thing of self-confidence that grows in me. It's like, I can do this. We could also call that self-pride. See, self-loathing, it started going downhill when I started feeling bad, but then I needed to self-evaluate and self-improve so that I could bring my pride back up and get my confidence. What's pride come before? The fall. So, of course, self-indulgence will be the next step because as soon as I'm confident in myself, I will again fall. And uh, th this, is, this is based on another principle, okay? And I want to look at this with you. You go to a party, you introduce yourself to someone. Hi, Prashant, I'm Tim. <laughs> so, uh, what's the next question I ask him? What do you do for a living, okay? What, what, what are you about? What do you do? How, what's your contribution to society? What do you do with your time? What do you produce? You know, what is it out here? What's the thing that you spend your time doing? And by that, what we're actually asking, unknowingly, and especially up here in the Northeast, is we're saying, who are you? Because what you do is who you are. And this is why I go to pastor's meetings and I walk into a pastor's meeting and there's this one dreaded question that every pastor is waiting for. You know what the question is? Yeah, how many of you guys bringing in on a Sunday? Well, I don't know. How many of yours left your church recently and are coming to mine now? <laughs> Shuffling the sheep. We had nicer grass in our sheep, in our pen, you know. And th this whole thing. And we consider that productivity, significance. And I can feel like a legit pastor for Jesus because I'm filling up the pews. I might not be seeing God do anything in anyone's life. I don't actually know. We might be building the kingdom of God. We might not be. It doesn't actually matter. Maybe I'm a little smarter than that, so my measurements have to be like, yeah, our church isn't that big, but you should hear all the God stories, you know? Or maybe it's something else, you know? Man, you should see what's happening in this. Justifying my own existence because I think that what I do defines who I am. And so I have to make sure that I'm doing what I do effectively in order to feel okay about who I am. Because this is the thing, is underneath of significance, there's something more important to us, and it's called legitimacy. Am I legit? Am I legitimately a child of God? Am I legitimately a good person? And this is what that rich young ruler was asking, wasn't it? He's like, so uh, 
When am I okay? What good thing do I have to do, significance, in order to enter in, you know, in order to be approved, in order to be legit? And so those who are selling this much at work, you're a legitimate salesman, you know? And the mom who's seeing their kids behave a certain way, wow, you're a good mom. You can take identity in that, you know? You can know this is who I am. And what ends up happening in our lives is because on this blue circle in the middle, our identity, we're desperate to find our identity and we think that we have to produce in order to figure out what what we're good at so that we know who we are because we're desperate for that identity level. We work very, very hard to make sure that we're producing what we need to produce so that people can feel okay about who we are, so that we can feel okay about who we are. And this is backwards. This is not what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us to start here. Who am I? And I ask myself this question. Who am I? Well, the first thing I know is I was created by God. I'm a creature. I'm not a creator. I don't exist on an island. There was never a time in my life where I was on my own. There was never a time in my life when I was my own. I am not my own. I am created. I'm not the creator. That means I belong to someone else. And I exist for the sake of someone other than myself. My identity at the very core, before sin, before redemption, before anything else, at creation, who am I? I'm a creature of the living God. I am designed for him, not for me. That's my identity. Now the problem is, is that our identity is fractured and it's broken because we chose to walk away from our identity by saying, I want to be on my own. I want to be an island and I don't want to serve the creator. I want to indulge in the created things and worship those false idols that allows me to forfeit the grace that could have been mine. And so I go on my own, and then there's this disturbance inside of me, this shame, this guilt, because the way I'm designed means that I can't be happy unless I'm in connection and submission to the living God who's breathing his life through me. But when I went my own way and became my island, my identity, there's an integrity breach in my identity. I'm told I'm a child of God, but I don't feel like a child of God. And I don't live like a child of God and I have the evidence to prove it because I'm not producing the fruit of a child of God and I try really hard to produce the fruit of a child of God so I can feel like a legitimate child of God but somehow I can never quite keep up with it and if the rich young ruler can't do it, like the rest of the disciples were saying, who can? Who can? Ah, but there's this other thing. And it's so often held in these chains here, you know. And um, there's this grace. There's this grace that belongs to us that was bled on the tree. And um, in order for him to adopt us as his own and to make us legitimate children, he washes us in his blood. And he who knew no sin takes all of our broken and shattered identity 
and our failure unto himself. And he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we die with him and go into the grave, when we rise, what we're told in the scriptures is we no longer live, but only Christ lives. See, here's the problem with the gospel for us many times is we have a hard time still believing the gospel because in the gospel it says, I've been washed clean, white as snow, and God thinks I'm amazing. But the problem is, is I'm still looking at the significance factor of my life and I'm reading those passages that are like, um, if I say that I love God, but I don't love my brother, then I'm a liar and there's no truth. And I'm flipping out, you know, because I don't understand them in the broader context. And what's the broader context? It's this, that I no longer exist. I'm still trying to establish an identity, but when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me. Who does he see? Jesus, there's only one who came out of the tomb. I didn't come up out of the tomb. Only he did. And so when the Father looks at us, he says, you're no longer your own. You're a part of the body of Christ. You're a member of the body of Christ. You're not your own. And, and this is why we discover legitimacy not from our significance, but from our identity. In other words, I can work really hard to try to feel legitimate, but working hard and producing something will never make me feel legitimate. The only thing that can get me to feel legitimate in my life is something called faith. Believing in what God said, that I am forgiven and loved a wonderful son of the living God, that he sees me through the lens of Jesus, that I no longer live, but Christ does. And so when he looks at that cross and he looks at his only begotten son and what he did in the garden of Gethsemane and what he did on the hill of Calvary and what he did from the, when he rose on the grave, that righteousness, that goodness, it's you. It's you. He sees it in you. That's not just Jesus anymore. It's you. You rose from the dead. You. You hung on a cross. You know, he looks at you and there's only one who's ever been good and it's Jesus, but he takes all of his goodness and he puts it on you so that when the Father looks at you, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, it's painted all in you. He infected you like a virus inside of you with his goodness until it took over every fiber of your being and the salvation that he's given to you is working itself out in your life and someday it may begin to produce fruits all over your life and maybe it's begun to but it's not because you're trying to produce the fruit it's only because you're believing in the cure and you're trusting in the one who already spoke to you and said you are clean working hard to squeeze fruit out of our branches never works but abiding in the vine always does what makes us powerful in this world what makes us good in this world, what makes us effective and righteous in this world is never trying to be those things. What makes us powerful and effective and righteous is when we believe that we already are because we're abiding in the one who is and hiding ourselves in him, resting in him, taking him at his word and trusting him. And when I walk into a room I don't have to see where you are on the ladder and where I am on the ladder and make sure that you think I'm this place on the ladder or make sure that I can feel okay about what I'm doing. Or I don't have to check the boxes or any of that. 
I'm filled up, full with the righteousness of God. Not self-righteousness, with the righteousness of God. This happens not just by trying to be good and trying to be, obey the laws. Like I said before, this happens in all over our lives. Trying to be effective at my job, trying to be effective with my family, trying to be good at everything I do. So often that stuff comes back to a failed identity, an empty identity, that I'm, identity where I'm trying to legitimize myself. But God's already got us. You know, you know Rick Warren out there at Saddleback Community Church, one of the biggest churches. Um, he, he said something awesome. I was reading one of his um, devotionals and had this uh, great devotional. I condensed it and reworded it a little bit, but I just want to read it to you. He expresses this really well, much better than I would have. We can't earn God's approval, recognition, or love. Just say it again. We can't earn God's approval as recognition or love. God unconditionally loves his children because God is unconditional love. If we want to be happy, we need to relax in God's grace every day. You want to move from Manhattan to Louisiana? You can do it today by relaxing in God's grace. Philippians 3.3 says, We Christians glory in what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we realize that we are hopeless to save ourselves. One of the things that will rob you of your joy is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the attitude that you have to prove your love to God. Dangerous trap. Man, that is a dangerous one. It is trusting in what you do for God instead of what Jesus did for you. It's thinking that you have to follow rules or self-improve in order to show yourself worthy. How do you know when you're struggling with self-righteousness? It's when you're judgmental or overly competitive or obsessed with others' opinions or obsessed with your own self-improvement. Self-righteousness will drain joy out of your life and out of your church. There's no joy in a self-righteous church. Everyone's just there out of duty or guilt. When we do finally realize there's nothing we can do to make God's, God love us more. It's one of the most liberating feelings in the world. Amen? Some of us are still hoping to feel that. And it's a key to happiness. We must remind ourselves of the grace of God every day and learn to relax in it. That's why when Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup, he said, do this as often as you eat and drink, in remembrance of me. The grace is ours. Philippians 3.9 says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. The only thing that I have to contribute, I have one thing to contribute to this scene, it's faith. That's what I have to contribute. Trust. Trusting God. The one thing that the rich young ruler actually did lack was faith. Trusting God's character, God's goodness, God's provision. Okay, I want you to take out your takeaways, please, your, um, the sheet paper. So we're called to live the graceful life, breaking off shame and self-righteousness. 
the lie that's underneath this form of bondage is this, that legitimacy, legitimacy is found in my knowledge, performance, effectiveness, or lifestyle, or something along those lines. In other words, if I know the right stuff about the Bible, if I perform well at work, if I'm effective in what God's called me to do, if my lifestyle's good enough, then I can feel like a good Christian and I can feel legitimate. That is a lie. A very, very tricky lie. And it sweeps through the church all the time. Okay? There's another wing to that lie, which is that I can have an identity outside of Jesus. Okay? Because the whole reason I want that kind of legitimacy by doing those kinds of things is because I'm trying to establish my own identity outside of Jesus. If my only identity is in Jesus, then it doesn't matter what I do anyway. It matters what he's done. So the baseline is that Jesus is my only identity. There is no legitimacy or identity found in my knowledge, performance, effectiveness, or lifestyle. No matter how good you are at your theology, no matter how well you perform, no matter how effective you are, no matter how good we are, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to do it. We will only get better at those things by looking at the truth that breaks this form of bondage. And that is this, that legitimacy is received through trusting God's unconditional love afforded by Jesus' atoning grace on the cross. The only way that I'm legit, the only way I can feel okay about myself, the only way that I know I've quote-unquote arrived is when I realize there is no me, there is only Jesus. I am found as a member in the body of Christ. And that's where my identity is solidly rooted. And since Jesus is perfect, I now have the perfection of Jesus resting on me. If I were set free by this truth, how would my life look different? Well, I would have unshakable confidence because my confidence wouldn't be self-confidence. It would be God-confidence, okay? And so the things that would normally rock me about what people think of me or when I fail at work or any of my performance, I wouldn't have to worry about that because my confidence would be in God. I would be full of joy and peace because there's not, circumstances wouldn't be the dictator of joy and peace for me. Circumstances don't matter. They're irrelevant because I'm not living out of significance on the periphery. I'm living out of identity. Who I am doesn't change based on the circumstances. So my joy is found in who I am, not in what it is I'm able to accomplish or experience. Third thing, I would be free from the need to condemn and improve myself. Hard to read? <laughs> They're tight in there. I would be free from the need to condemn and approve, improve myself. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Notice that? We're told sometimes to judge ourselves, but the reason we're told to judge ourselves is to check our hearts and our minds and to see if we're trusting in Christ or not. What Paul's talking about, he's like, I forget all the stuff that's behind. I look forward to what's ahead. He's like, I don't even judge the stuff I really do. I'm not taking toll anymore of like, wait, did I do good stuff today or did I do bad stuff? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? He's like, I don't even do that. I don't think about that anymore. I live in the redemption. I live in the grace that has already been given to me. Instead of fearing failure, I would seek opportunities to love. Instead of being worried about where I'm going to mess up, instead of that, I'm looking around to figure out where I can love people because I know I can meet Christ there and that the power of God can flow. And that's what, where my eyes would focus, okay? 
I would be free from the need to constantly judge others. Who cares where they are on the ladder or where I am on the ladder? We don't need to figure that out because all there is is God is good. It doesn't mean that there isn't accountability in the body of Christ and that we're not helping each other depend more on Jesus, but it does mean that there isn't some echelon of faith and who's good and who's not, and I don't have to live in that. And then the last thing, instead, I would be able to easily extend grace to those people. Why? Why would I be able to extend grace? That's all we got. (laughs) That's all we got. That's the only reason I live. So, Richard Foster, you know, the prayer guy, maybe you've read his book on prayer, it's incredible. Richard Foster said this one line that has just given to me so much. He said, when a jet takes off on a runway, it is burning through rocket fuel, just, you know, trying to fire up those jets to get enough speed to take off. He said, the Christian life should burn through the grace of God like a jet burning through rocket fuel on the day it takes off. We live and breathe and exist by the grace of God. We don't live by our own efforts and our own strength. The reason that Jesus can say his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because everything is grace, unending grace, unending grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. You know the song. And how's it go? And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. And this is it. I mean, this is our life. This is what we live by. Christians are not good people. Do you know that? Christians aren't good people. There is only one good person. Jesus. Christians are in Christ or they are not Christians. It is his goodness and his goodness alone. We are the wayward children of God who have been forgiven, redeemed, legitimized, and brought in to Christ. That's our identity. If we live in that and drink that and learn to meditate on that truth and live in that reality, it will change everything about our lives. And then we can go and take a whole lot of pride in how our lives are different. Not really. Let's pray. God, your grace is awesome. So good, you know. Uh, You know me. You know me, Father. You know that this is a struggle every day of my life. That there is not a day that goes by that I wouldn't want to self-improve myself. You know, that I wouldn't want to work to better myself so I can feel better. And that you have to every day, daily, you have to wash me in your word. That you have to remind me, that you have to do that Romans 8 thing again, where your spirit has to testify to my spirit that I am your child. That I have been made legitimate by the cleansing blood of Christ. Jesus, we want our identity to be formed by the legitimacy that you provide. Man, I don't want to get stuck. I don't want any of us to get stuck. There is way, 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 way too many things that can distract us. And there's this one thing, this one truth, this grace, this unending, amazing, 
God, help us to not strive to be good Christians. God, break off the bondage, the lie of striving to be good Christians. And instead, God, help us in our brokenness to come in the opposite spirit of that rich young ruler and just say, I don't have what it takes, Jesus. And watch the tears roll down Jesus' eyes and watch him show us his hands and his feet. And he says, no, but I do. (laughs) Come on. And then wrap us up in your arms. Help us to live in that spot of dependence, God, instead of arrogance. We thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.